The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we have opportunity to sing of your love for us. And we say it's all that we need. We say that, and if we're honest, sometimes we, we believe it, but often we don't. Lord, will you press into us the breadth and the, the length and the height and the depth of your love for us? And to convince us, maybe convince us again, that in fact your love for us is sufficient. And that in your love you give us all things. You give us all things for good, for our growth, for our conformity to you, for our honoring of you, for our delighting in you. Your love is behind every good that we have. Your love is what we need. It's what gives us life and everything. So at the same time, Lord, help us to say thank you for the, for the material things, for the circumstantial things that you give us, and to remember that behind that is the love of God for us in Christ that we most profoundly need and which is enough. Help us to see that and to believe it. And to see and to believe this morning as we consider authority, to see and believe it carried out for us in authority. Help us to think about this topic, Lord, which for some of us, just the word is a hard word. If we think about rule, we cringe a little bit. But help us to think about authority in love and authority in good. And would you, as we think about it, Lord, would you grow us? Would you build up your church? And would you draw people into it? And would you draw from us then honor? A praising of you and a, a delighting in you. So Lord, take this subject before us, take this passage before us and teach us and cause us to think perhaps more broadly and, and more submissively than we have before about authority be teacher to us this morning and build your church and honor the name of Jesus in us. We are thankful to be your people in him. So show us more of his glory and make that be developing and growing and enlarging for us in our souls. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Turn our attention this morning to the beginning of Luke chapter 20. Luke, by this point, has now finally come to the city of Jerusalem. Je Jesus has finally come to the city of Jerusalem and the, the climactic confrontations that await him there. Welcomed into the city as a triumphant king bringing peace, for the moment, Jesus enjoys the favor of large crowds, even though we know Sadly, they don't really get it. They don't really know what's going on, what he's offering them. 
But for the moment, though, he, he enjoys their appreciation of him, and in a way they are mesmerized by his words and by his ways. Starting right off what we saw last week, his aggressive and earnest cleansing of the temple. The temple was designed by God. You recall we talked about this last week. The temple was designed by God to be the place in all the earth, the place where very uniquely God's presence dwelt, and therefore then the place where uniquely people could come into his presence. They could approach him. They could come, a person could come, could have sin dealt with, could be cleansed of that, and therefore then cleansed, could draw near to God's presence and and commune with him, fellowship with him, and be blessed. Come into the presence of and enjoy God. That's what God planned for the temple, but that's all wrecked, ruined by what priests and merchants had done in setting up a market in the outer court of the temple. Commercializing the whole thing. They'd robbed God of honor as commerce and wealth became the focus for many. God's, God's place of worship, the place where you come commune, is actually the place where you come make money. They'd robbed God of, of the honor due to his name, and they'd robbed people of what the place was for. A place to come and meet with God, and it became a, a place where, where, as you recall, we talked about, I'm, I'm distracted in various ways, I get a mixed message, I'm, I'm coerced, I'm extorted, in fact. And I'm told by those who are leaders that actually life is found in the money. That's how they're living. All these mixed messages, it it ruined the experience of what the temple was supposed to be. It polluted it, and so Jesus cleansed it in in a a foreshadowing of what he would do in a much more profound way in himself, cleansing sin and making a pure temple. He aggressively chased out the, the merchants, pointing ahead, of course, to the cross and how he would chase out sin at the cross and would become himself the place where God and man can meet, the the new temple, a pure one. But that cleansing strongly irritated the religious leaders and the other community leaders who were behind the market. It strongly irritated them, and so in a new and, and... more committed way, they banded together in opposition, seeking to destroy him, it said. And that brings us to our passage for today. The leaders are after him, and so in numerous ways, they're going to they're gonna hunt him. They're going to seek to trap him, pursue him, trying to destroy him. And it begins with a challenge to his authority in our passage today. So we're going to look at this discussion that Jesus and these leaders have and consider what it says, what it says about authority, and then how it applies to us today. So let me read Luke chapter 20, verses 1 to 8, and then I'll draw two observations from it. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, well, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, well, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. 
So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Luke 21 to 8. Two observations, and here's the first one. Jesus' authority over all of the earth is absolute. Jesus' authority over all the earth is absolute, and it is good. His authority is absolute, and it is good. The issue this passage circles around is the issue of authority. Verse 1, Jesus is in the temple. He's at, at center stage here again, and he is teaching the people, it says. It'd be, he'd be taking the Old Testament scriptures and opening them up and explaining what it is that God requires of us. But not only that, he's also, it says, preaching the gospel, preaching the good news that's also all through the Old Testament, the message of God's grace. So he's got two things here appropriately right in the temple, a great setting for this, to talk about what God requires and how God in grace is going to meet us and cleanse us of our failure for what he requires. The sacrifice is happening right over there in the temple, remember? And then empower us to obey. So Jesus is laying these two things out right in the temple in front of all the people, it says. And then the authorities come up to him. The same basic group that back in verse 47 was seeking to destroy him. So we know something about their motive here, and we're going to come to that later. That's in the second point. But they have two related questions, both of which are about authority. Tell us by what authority you do these things. They're asking a question there about what we might call scope or realm, or maybe jurisdiction. What authority, what entitles you to do these things? In other words, cleanse the temple and, and to stand here and teach the Bible and talk about what God requires and explain it. What entitles you to do this? And then, secondly, who gave you that authority? So two questions there. What kind of authority do you have and who gave it to you? They're about authority, which Jesus, it seems, decides not to answer in the end. Verse 8, Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The leaders give their no-comment answer, and Jesus himself gives a, well, then a no-comment about my authority. So are we left at the end of the passage just having the issue of authority raised, but then nothing said about it? Is that where we're left? Well, no. Not really, because we have read the rest of the gospel. And Jesus did, in fact, answer the question indirectly. By pointing us back at the rest of the gospel, especially by pointing us back at John the Baptist. If we remember John the Baptist, remember what he's about, we, if we get John the Baptist, we recall him, then we understand Jesus and his authority. You may recall that the Gospel of Luke, which actually of all the Gospels is the one that contains most of the Christmas story, the conception and birth of Jesus, the Gospel of Luke actually begins with the conception and the birth of John the Baptist. So it's, it's first about John the Baptist before it's about Jesus because of what John is. 
You can read this in chapter 1, verse 76. John the Baptist's father says of him after he's born, you, John, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. That's, that's John. He's going to go before the Lord to give knowledge of salvation tied to the forgiveness of sin. And then from that point on, that's what John did. When he grew up, he became a preacher, a prophet, talked to all who would listen about the coming Lord, about the coming King, and of people's need for forgiveness. He called people to repentance and said, you need to repent of sin in order to be forgiven by the one who's coming. That was John's basic message. And then he baptized people. Baptism was a way of identifying with something. He baptized people to identify with that message. So he would say, repent, turn to God, and wait for the coming king. And people would say, I, yes, I agree, I want in on that. I need to repent, I need the coming king. And they'd be baptized by John. Looking forward then to repentance and forgiveness and the coming king who would save, John said, that one's coming. Now when he comes, it's not me, but when he comes, he's going to be something. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals, said John. But he will come to cleanse the earth of sin, to forgive and to judge the great king. And then... Jesus came, and John said, there he is. All of John's ministry, from, from the very beginning, from his conception, all through his birth, up then through his adult life ministry, all of his ministry is like one gigantic arrow pointing towards the one who was long expected, the coming ruler, the king, the Messiah, who would deal with sin, who would judge, who would forgive, and then along comes Jesus, and John says, that one right there. And he baptizes him to identify him with the people. And then a voice from heaven speaks, this one right here is my son with whom I am well pleased. And from that moment on, Jesus' ministry is launched in power. All of Jesus' ministry, his powerful, compassionate, think, I'm going to say these words and think about Moving through the Gospel of Luke, you think, oh yeah, that, and oh yeah, that, and oh yeah, that. This is what's supposed to come to our mind. John the Baptist says this one, and then watch what happens. His compassionate, powerful, miraculous, demon cleansing, sickness healing, weather and nature commanding, leprosy cleansing, dead raising, truth preaching, hypocrisy-confronting, sin-forgiving ministry. That's Jesus. All of that. John says, I'm coming before the king who comes. This is him, and then all of that comes from Jesus right after that. Flowed from village to village all the way to Jerusalem to the temple to this moment right here. John was for something, to lay out a, a, a preparatory a platform on which Jesus would come stand and so as to say, look, the king. So we remember all that 
as Jesus then brings him up. Everybody in the audience remembers, oh yeah, John the Baptist. Oh yeah. What John was all about, what we thought about John, and what John said this one was all about, oh yeah. Jesus answered the question. And he answers the question for us to call to mind, this is who Jesus is. He's not a great teacher. He's not somebody who's really hacked off about corruption in the temple. He's a good teacher. And he's hacked off about corruption in the temple. But he's not just that. John and the life and the ministry of Jesus, we look at all of that and it tells us something about Jesus. He is the Lord. You, John, will go before the way of the Lord. I'm come to prepare the way of the Lord. This is the Lord, the King. The one in absolute authority, sovereign over all of the earth. This is Jesus. Hold in your mind here that I prayed earlier. We have important, important, important concepts to also keep in mind the love of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus. But do not, in, in saying those words and looking at those things and, and treasuring them, do not forget, overlook the authority of Jesus. Which brought before us here this morning. He came to earth for a brief time, but is now in this moment sits raised up and enthroned in heaven where he is actively reigning over all the earth. Who gave that to him? Where did he get that right? God decided that God the Son would exercise dominion over all of the earth as the king. And his dominion is absolute. Total. And authority that he exercises, as we see in this passage and have seen throughout, as he exercises, as he teaches. So an authority that comes a little bit like, this is what you should do. He teaches authoritatively. But more than that, he teaches in a way that doesn't just leave it at this is what you should do, but by the power of his spirit actually presses that into people's lives so that those truths in ways, in times, as he chooses, when he pleases, they press into our lives and they accomplish change. They effect a difference in people. He exercises his authority by changing individuals. We sometimes think, I'm going to work on this, or I'm going to try to improve this, and we forget that, no, behind all that, and even in ways that we never even thought of, God is at work to change us, to press his word into people and move them, to move you. But more than just teaching, more than just exercising authority through teaching, We gotta think about. I try to think if this is actually accurate. I'm not sure. I'm not a computer guy, but his authority also hangs over all of the earth like a great big operating system. That you never notice. It's in the backdrop, 
But the reason you can do this, that, and the other on your computer and you can't do this, that, and the other is because of the way the thing was made. And someone else decided that. Someone else put that operating system on that machinery and therefore it works this way and doesn't work that way. If I'm not quite right in the details there of the computers, you understand my point. There's something behind the scenes where this king reigns over all of the earth, even ruling over situations where he's not seen, not known, not honored, not wanted. He's still there, reigning. In control of every detail, of every moment, in every situation, in every life, in every room, in every building, on every continent, in all the earth. Most commonly, his authority is exercised providentially, that is, apart from miracle. Miracles are very rare. Miracle is a suspension of the way things usually work, and that very rarely happens. It does. But most commonly, God exercises his authority in all of the earth providentially through the ordinary workings of ordinary people and ordinary animals and ordinary weather patterns. He exercises control through them, through us. Subtly and carefully, all the thoughts and actions of people and and the animals that act and the weather that twists and turns and the currents that flow in streams and oceans and, and everything that's going on in, out in space, and everything that's going on in politics and economics. These are the massive fields with so many details, but God reigns over all of it and there is not any single thing that happens apart from the conscious knowledge and deliberate knowing, seeing permission of Jesus, his decree That will be not, oh, that happened? Okay. That will be. That is the decision of God that things be. That's what the authority of Jesus is like. Everything is under it, which means that good and evil both occur under the sovereign hand of God. I know that's hard to think about, but work that through one more time. Of course it must be. Because there are not two gods in the world. There's not a good God and a bad God. There's one God. And everything happens under him. Not done by him. People sin. People do evil. But everything happens beneath him. Good and evil. Beauty and ugliness both. Righteousness and sin both. Everything occurs beneath the reign of God the Son. People do evil, and yes, weather causes calamity, yes. But no bit of weather 
No, no hurricane or no simple rainstorm that ruins your golf game. No verbal slight, a little bit of an insult, and, and no, no demonic attack, and no simple paper cut that's annoying, and no calamitous death. Nothing is out from beneath the authority of the Son. He's the king, and he reigns over all of the earth. If you follow Ephesians 1.11, you follow the repeated logic there. God asks himself, what should I make happen in the world? And he gives himself advice, and he always takes his own advice because he's infinitely wise. And then he obeys himself because he's always righteous and always submissive to righteous, pure authority. And then he carries it out because he's infinitely powerful. He asks himself what to do. He gives himself good advice, and he does it surely. This is God. This is what it means to be God. means to be in authority over all things. This is the king, this is Jesus who reigns in absolute authority, and it is good. Now, if you were just tracking what I was saying, I think an obvious question, what? How is, you were just talking, you're just giving this, mm, the good and the bad happens, and now you say it's all good? That is... Maybe crazy and maybe hard. It's good. I'm not saying the Bible does not say that evil is good. Evil is evil. Bad is bad. The authority of God that sits over it is good. Why? How can that be? Because of what Jesus is doing with it. And you. You should think this through and rejoice in it. If evil is running renegade through the world and God is trying to chase up with it and, st and stamp it down like one gigantic game of whack-a-mole, we are in trouble. But God actually sits over it and says, what a blessing that this is recorded for us actually in the book of Genesis, that it's recorded on the lips of Joseph, sold by his brothers into 14 years of bondage. Slavery. Joseph then says to them, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Not, you meant it for evil and God managed in his great wisdom to turn that to be something good. Meant. Same thing. You meant it one way and God meant it for good. He reigns over and does good with evil. So that everything evil that happens, everything bad that happens to us in all of the world is beneath the hand of one who himself is good and makes it to become good. He works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. This should cause you to rejoice because you can look at something evil and say, thank God for an absolute authority that's over it and will do good in all of the land in all of my life. That is evil. And in his hand, he will control it and turn it to be, he means it to be, in fact, 
good. He's doing something with it. He's intentional. He's conscious. He's purposeful. They mean it one way. He means it another. Well, like how? Well, here's just a hint of it. This is not the fullness of the answer, but a hint of it. So I read earlier... Luke chapter 1, verse 76, John's father talking about what John would be. If you continue on in that in chapter 1, John's going to talk about salvation for his people in the forgiveness of their sins, continuing on, because of the tender mercy of our God. He, God, this King who will come, the Lord, will give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and guide their feet into the way of peace. We're going to sit in darkness. The king will come and shine light. We're going to sit beneath the shadow of death. The king will come and shine light. We're going to sit knowing no peace. The king will come, shine light, and bring peace. Not the full answer, but part of the answer. What is God doing? What can be good about an authority that reigns over all bad things? It doesn't just eliminate all of them. What it does is it shows the beauty of light. A piece of the answer. We are a people who do not have light in ourselves. And sometimes, graciously, kindly, God brings that front and center and reveals it to us to show you don't have light. You sit beneath the shadow of death and you do not know peace. And God brings that front and center to show it to us through the evil actions of other people, through the turning of weather. You're vulnerable. Look at me. Look who I am. I'm light in your darkness. Look what I bring, peace in your tumult. A piece of the answer. How can God be good in that absolute authority that allows all that junk? A piece of the answer is God is working all of that to display the glory of himself, the need of people to be delivered by someone outside of them. And then, in fact, to deliver us. To bring light and peace where there isn't any. You don't treasure your car working until it doesn't for a long time and then suddenly does. You don't treasure a job until you haven't had one forever and then you get one. You don't treasure health until you've been sick for some great length of time and then are healed. In a real way, part of the answer is how, does the, how is the absolute authority of God that allows evil, how is that a good thing? Well, it highlights what he is and what we are. Showing the goodness of him and the vulnerability and the weakness of us causes us to treasure him. What the Gospel of Luke shows us, what John the Baptist's arrow pointing towards Jesus and the life of Jesus shows us is that here is one who is in absolute authority. And that authority is always good even amidst difficult, hard, painful, even evil situations. He is a good king, a good ruler. 
an authority that we need not fear or resist, but which people commonly do. And that takes us to the second observation. Resistance to the authority of Jesus is irrational and it misses this good that we need. Resistance to the authority of Jesus is irrational and it misses this good that we need. The good that we need is, is the knowledge that there is someone in charge, that evil is not just running rampant on the earth and that life is random, but that there is actually one who reigns over it for good. If you resist the authority of Jesus, not only is it not, not rational, but you miss that. You miss the good that we need. So we looked at the authority of Jesus here already absolute and good but the main thrust of the passage is actually a subtle half step away from simply teaching about the authority of Jesus the leaders the authorities who come to question him they're not actually asking a real question they're not seeking to learn what we just talked about They're the same basic group back in verse 47. If you look back, it's almost the same words. Chief priests, scribes, and principal men of the people. Now it's chief priests, scribes, and elders, principal men. Verse 47, they are seeking to destroy him. Well, here they come, seeking to destroy him. They're coming to ask him these questions in the temple. Two questions. They want to ask him in the temple, right in front of all the people. What kind of authority do you have? And who gave you that authority? And so to speak, they, they are, you know, they've got a phone 9-1 and their fingers hanging over the second one because they know, they just know he's going to say, I'm the messianic king given that authority by God. And they're going to hit one. They're going to summon the Romans. He just said he's a king. And they're going to look at the people and say, he just said he's sent by God. He's the messianic king here in the temple, which is blasphemous. Stone him. Trapped him. When he answers the questions like they know he's going to. I'm the messianic king sent by God is to step in the trap. He puts him at odds with the Romans and puts him at odds with all the people. So Jesus' answer dodges that and instead turns the tables and ups the ante. We... You can read it here, and you see their, their obvious dilemma. He mentions John the Baptist, and I asked them about that, and we see the obvious, he's put him over a barrel here, because everybody knows that they totally rejected John and his call to repentance. And we are ourselves let into their inner deliberations. We're going to put like in the circle, so that the, the dilemma becomes doubly obvious to us. They're trapped so they stop and discuss it and say, no comment. To which Jesus replies on his own, no comment. But of course, the point's already been made clear. They irrationally, in pride, irrationally, it's not according to r rational thinking. They're not reasoning through and thinking. Irrationally, by pride, oppose John 
and they irrationally in pride oppose Jesus, the one John pointed to. They say they are about righteousness. They say they are about truth. They say they love the scriptures. They say they are, they are for repentance and holiness. But now it's completely obvious to everybody that really they're just about their own authority, maintained and upheld. And of course, one of the points Luke is trying to make in his book is to reveal them, to expose them. So that everybody reading this would understand, don't follow them. Would understand, why did the people who theoretically would be in charge, why did they reject Jesus? Oh, I see. To show us that they're bankrupt, don't be like them. But we're not tempted to actually follow these Jewish religious leaders anymore. I mean, that's not our, our issue. But the don't be like them, they're bankrupt, that is still our issue. Particularly when we think about authority. Let's think about authority for a second. The topic of authority is a difficult one for us. partially because of what's outside of us. We've all been burned by some person, by some entity that has authority over us. We can't get away from it in society and work and school and family. It's always around us, but we all know, we've all experienced something in authority that has been used in a way that's hurt us maybe insensitively or foolishly, but sometimes wrongly and even wickedly. So we're skittish around the word authority. We're reluctant to kind of give ourselves to it. And we are certainly resistant to people who claim positions of authority over us. Especially, especially when they claim a position of authority and put the word absolute in front of it. No, 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 no. We don't want to go there. Seen too much of that. Out there, and then we've got something we need to reckon with inside of us, too. It's compounded by the fact that we humans love our autonomy. From our youngest age, one of the first things kids begin to do is say, I do it. My kids, I can say this, but they're not here right now, used to say, you're not the boss of me. <laughs> well, yeah, I am. <laughs> no, you're not. Yeah, I am. And that doesn't stop when we're no longer two. We're no longer teenagers. It just gets more sophisticated. Seemingly compliant people shout that inside of them. You're not the boss of me. Who gives you the right to tell me what to do? While smiling and obeying. Bold people shout it out and form a protest. But the greatest idolatry 
the thing worship that's not God, but worship as if it is God. The greatest idolatry that all people share is this strong bent towards self-rule. And so we resent any infringement on that autonomy and seek to oppose it, and we hate words like submission and obedience. This is so strong in us. We've, we've got outside, we've seen it used poorly, seen authority used poorly, and inside, we don't even want authority other than ourselves to start with. These two things together make it really hard, and it's very easily, it turns to irrational resistance to authority in general, and then the authority of Jesus, we get a strong thing that he is going to try to tell me to do something that I don't want to do, and I'm pretty convinced that I know what's best for me. And so, irrationally, not thinking through all of the evidence, does Jesus do good? Never mind that. I feel like, that's not rational. Irrationally, and, and in part from fear, but even behind that, there's just the, if he's in charge, that means I'm not, and I don't like that. We hold him off, and in so doing, miss the good that we need and would be so blessed by Blessed to be able to have and to be able to know that we have and to be able to reckon as true and then be able to rest in confidently the knowledge, the, the reality that there is a king who reigns over my life and is doing good in it. That would be such a blessing to me, but I miss that when I reject his rule and go my own way. We need that in our societies. We, we all need it. We flounder without that kind of authority. The world needs an authority that stands above the individual. You realize if, if we all live, if all seven, how many billion of us there are on the earth now, if we all live as I don't want outside authority, I want me to be king. We've got seven billion kings and queens walking the earth. That's a problem. That's a problem. When we're all left to do what's right in our own eyes, chaos and evil comes about quickly. That's where exploitation happens because somebody who's stronger will get his way and might makes right. That's bad. Do you see that? That's bad. I know, that's why I don't want authority. No, 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 no. You can't get away from it. The answer to freedom through no authority, which does not work, the answer is actually freedom by submission to a good authority. You can't get away from authority, and we can't all be autonomous. We need an authority. We need submission to a good authority who will set us free, and that's Jesus. Absolute authority, good authority over the world at large and over us individually. That's a solid hope that we can stand on and rest under. He has all of it in his hands and is working it for good even if you don't see it. People mean evil to be for evil and he means it to be for good. 
and he always accomplishes his purposes. So we've got this, this negative take on authority on the outside. We've got this bent inside of us that makes us want to be just like these leaders and irrationally in pride resist Jesus and keep ourselves enthroned. How does God seek to move us from that position to submission to this great king? How does he do that? And understand I'm talking to Christians here just as much as to people who aren't Christians. Because we all struggle with this. Submission to Christ's authority His providential power works over your life and you're injured in a car accident or you lose your job. Man, I wish God had been in charge of that. He was. But how many of us in that moment say, I'm going to count it all joy, Lord. I'm going to say thank you. Give thanks in all things. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. How many of us actually lived there? We encounter Christians. We encounter his authority through spirit-driven teaching of his word. And I find out what? That my marriage options are significantly curtailed? What? And therefore, my dating options and my sexual practice is significantly curtailed? What? He says in the Bible, what? No sex outside of marriage, date and marry only believers, express male headship in marriage, and stay married forever till death do you part with only two exceptions. Christians have a problem with all of that. Let alone non-Christians out there. Christians have a problem with this, that, or the other, and that. That's in the Bible. Clear as day. The authority of Jesus says, this is my will for you in Christ Jesus, that you receive this and say thank you for it. And Christians say, oh, man, I think I would rather be the authority on this one and date him because he's cute and he's the only one who will date me. I'd rather, I think, sleep with her because, you know, Christians have a problem with that. So we, I'm talking about the church, we need to be won over to and brought sweetly under the authority of Jesus that is absolute and good. How does he win us over well, in part, I think, by showing us our need. We need good authority. We are small and insecure, futile, weak, vulnerable. Pick a word. It's all true. And if there is a good shepherd to be had, we need one. But he better be good. Not one who will extort, who will rob. 
one who instead, though, will provide life, who will bless. Is there such a king? I need one. We become in people who, as we become in touch with our, our vulnerability and our weakness and our frailty, we need someone to reign over us. He'd better be good. Is there such a shepherd? And of course, Jesus claims to be him. Is he? How does God win you over and convince you that he is that kind of a shepherd that you need and that he is good and that he always will work good into your life? How does he win you over? By sending a king like this king came. Humble and riding on a donkey. To bring peace. He did not demand respect for his absolute authority. He didn't consider it necessary to be regarded as what he is, the ruler of the universe, not yet. Instead, he came humbly as a mere man, more than that, as a servant, and more than that, as a wrongly accused, despised, rejected, mocked, beaten, shamed, murdered servant. Abused by power, a victim of authority. All to serve and to bless and to deliver those who would be his subjects who took the greatest evil of all time, the murder of Jesus, and said, I mean it for good. And if I mean this for good, I can mean all other evil for good. If I can make this be right and make this be deliverance, I can make all other things be right and be deliverance. To give his life so that we would live. To give his honor so that we would be honored. To give peace, to give, his, to give up his own peace that we might find peace. But when he is vindicated and raised up and enthroned in heaven to rule, we also will be raised up with him to reign with him. That's an amazing thing. The humbled king, exalted, brings his subjects along with him and says, join me in the reigning. He will reign forever and ever, and we with him. That's a cool thing. Beneath him, with him. We are sons and daughters even now of God, heirs with him, and will be rulers with him if you trust him. So the invitation is to surrender to his authority and not resist it to let it be, to let it sit on your life and to let it be. Don't miss the good of this ruler that you need, but instead put yourself beneath him and say, here, have my life, have charge of my life. And then to, to reckon that as true and to rest in it because what he's doing, you can be okay with. Does that mean it's good? Not necessarily. It could be totally terrible be evil but it's beneath the hand of the one who is good 
wins you to that perspective and to that rest by first himself humbling his own self before he calls you to be humbled beneath him. Consider the cross and consider the king humbled. Be, all I can say is be one to him. Be wooed by him. He's a good ruler and he's for you. So trust him. Let me pray. Lord, I don't know who in this moment is most wrestling with the fact of your control over that awful circumstance that one he or she is thinking of. I don't know who that is, Lord, but it's probably somebody. So would you draw near and give rest to that soul? For all of us, Father, will you do a work of lifting up in front of us Jesus as Lord, a sweet hope, persuade us that it is good that he reigns, persuade us to submit to him, to surrender our selves and our lives and our loved ones are all to him. Persuade us to lay our lives at his feet to find life. That's what I ask you to do now. And in so doing, would you build your church in honor his name and glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.